0: Namo dhasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasap Namo dhasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasap Namo dhasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasap buddhāṁ dhammāṁ sanghaṁ namāsāmi This next uh, chapter, chapter nine, is called "The Hindrances and Their Cessation." Uh, So this is from the uh, uh, second volume of the uh, anthology of Ajahn Sumato's teachings, and so this uh, the original book is "Mindfulness: The Path to the Deathless." As we listen inwardly, we begin to recognize the whispering voices of guilt, remorse, and desire. Jealousy and fear, lust and greed. Sometimes you can listen to what lust says. I want, I've got to have, I've got to have, I want, I want. Sometimes it doesn't even have an object. You can just feel lust with no object. So you find an object. The desire to get something. I want something, I want something. I've got to have something. I want. You can hear that if you listen to your mind. Usually we find an object for lust, such as sex, or we can find our, uh, we can spend our time fantasizing. Lust may take the form of looking for something to eat, or anything to absorb into, to become something, unite with something. Lust is always on the lookout, always seeking for something. It can be an attractive object, which is allowable for monks, like a nice robe, or an alms bowl, or some delicious food. You can see the inclination to want it, to touch it. To try and somehow get it, own it, possess it, make it mine, consume. And that's lust. That's a force in nature which we must recognize. Not to condemn it and say, I'm a terrible person because I have lust. Because that's another ego reinforcement, isn't it? As if we're not supposed to have any lust. As if there are any human being who didn't experience desire for something. These are conditions in nature which we must recognize and see, not through condemnation, but through understanding them. So we get to really know the movement in our mind of lust, greed, seeking something, and the desire to get rid of. You can witness that also, wanting to get rid of something that you have, or some situation, or pain itself. I want to get rid of the pain that I have. I want to get rid of my weakness. I want to get rid of dullness. I want to get rid of my restlessness, my lust. I want to get rid of everything that annoys me. Why did God create mosquitoes? I want to get rid of the pests. Sensual desire is the first of the hindrances, the nivarana. Aversion is the second one. Your mind is haunted with not wanting, with petty irritations and resentments, and then you try to annihilate them. So that's an obstacle to your mental vision. That's a hindrance. I'm not saying we should try to get rid of that hindrance, that's aversion, but to know it, to know its force, to understand it as you experience it. Then you recognize the desire to get rid of things in yourself, the desire to get rid of things around you, the desire to not be here, desire not to be alive, desire to no longer exist. That's why we like to sleep, isn't it? Then we can not exist for a while, in sleep consciousness, we don't exist because there isn't that same feeling of being alive anymore. That's annihilation. So some people like to sleep a lot because living is too painful for them, too boring, too unpleasant. If we're prone to getting depressed or riddled with doubt, we may seek an escape through sleep, or try other ways to force these moods out of consciousness. So this uh, way of speaking about the the hindrances, uh, this is. Very um, of, uh, common, uh, a very standard um, approach within the uh, the forest tra- tradition. And uh, although these qualities, the nivarana and what they're hindering, they're, they're hindering samadhi or concentration. So that's what they they're hindering, or they're an obstacle to. Um, they are uh, see, it, it, it emphasises being ways of helping to develop wisdom. So uh, would often call the five hindrances your five teachers, your five ajans, and that um, uh, the, the feeling of, of wanting to get rid of them or resenting them being around, um, then uh, he would always uh, uh, emphasize the fact that the, uh, having these particular difficulties or obstructions or, or challenges, you know, that, uh, this is the way that we develop our spiritual, our spiritual skills and so that the uh, the five hindrances even though they they um you know they were they're sort of labeled as being unskillful sense desire ill will uh, restlessness uh, doubt and and dullness that uh, they are uh, they uh, have a, a negative or obstructive quality that uh, to to sort of view them in a, in a negative light and as, as uh, lumpur sametha is describing here just to say I, I want to get rid of my hindrances just to, to wipe them out that that's in a way, just uh, developing the, the the hindrance of aversion and uh, the vibhavatana, the wanting to get to get rid of, so the shift of attitude to looking at the hindrances as a a um, uh, a, a way of developing your spiritual skill, developing the parameters, um, is uh, I would say one of the most uh, helpful say uh, changes a, a, of attitude because we can all think, oh, if only I didn't have this restlessness if only my mind wasn't filled with lust or filled with aversion then i could be happy it's natural enough to natural enough to think in that way if only i didn't have this obstacle everything would be great (laughs) but uh, it's a a slight shift of attitude and um, uh, say using that that difficulty or that challenge as a way of a drawing upon your own spiritual skills so uh, many years ago when uh uh Agent Someto first went back to visit Thailand. Uh, after, I think January of 1981, and he went back to uh, to visit Lumpocha and, uh, and so and Paul said, "So, how's it going, Someto?" He'd been there when Chithurst opened in uh, in June of 1979, and it was the first time they'd they'd met up since then. And so he said, "So, Someto, how's it going at Chithurst? And he said, "Oh, it's amazing. There's, I've never been with such a, an inspiring group of people." You know. The, uh, the monks are really, uh, really diligent, you know, the nuns are really, are really committed, and they, they really work hard at looking after the monastery and trying to get on with each other, and, and they're really totally committed to the practice, they're really attentive, they really you know, listen to the Dharma talks and really focus on the meditation and sort of, as they say, waxing lyrically, uh, going on uh, with this kind of um, uh, say, um, very, very positive description of how great everything was at Chihas. And uh, after a while, he paused, and Pochar just said, you <laughs> won't develop very much li- wisdom living with that lot." You know, he's completely unimpressed. And, and uh, I don't know. not know whether he said, "I'll send you a few, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a few characters to help kind of liven things up a bit." But
1: uh, <laughs> they they arrived
0: anyway. <laughs> so, but it was a, but it was a, a an exchange that Dampa uh, So mentioned very very often because. His mind was. Isn't this great? I haven't got any difficult people. How wonderful! You know, everything is very positive. Therefore, good. And uh, Lumbhuchar was was completely unimpressed. I mean, that was a teaching in its own right. Like, don't don't hang on to to goodness. Don't attach to happiness and and comfort because uh, that that just makes you uh, stupid. <laughs> also, uh, and, uh, a few years ago, when uh, Lumbhuchar Liam was visiting a Payagiri monastery, when I was when I was there. And somebody asked him what was the most difficult obstacle or the the most uh, sort of problematic aspect of of his uh, his training as a, as a, a young monk. And so he started speaking, and he said, "Well, when I was younger, there was a lot of fear, and so that was something that that I had to uh, to work with a lot." And then he, he paused and said, "Well." You know, to talk of these things as obstacles or obstructions, as as upasak, as as uh, the kind of um, things that are, uh, uh, say, uh, getting in the way, So this. It's really the, the wrong way of speaking about it because it's these are the very things that help you to to raise your game. So that uh, it's because you you can't be complacent. You, so that you have to draw upon strengths so that you don't realize that you have. You have to to develop resources that you. <laughs> You didn't know were there. You have to you know, to to rise up to meet those challenges. And he was, he said, you know, it's like if you're in a football team and uh, you're you're only uh, playing the the other the other schools in your in your local district, you know, you, you can get by. And you don't really have to work too hard. If you're playing against the the sort of the the um, the regional champions, then it's like, oh my goodness, <laughs> we've really got to train ourselves. We got to. To, to work much harder because the, the, this team is really um, you know way way ahead of us. So you have to literally improve your game, to to work harder and and to be more attentive. So that uh, even that the way of calling them hindrances is say is, it's part of the story, but also uh, as I said, the you know, Ajahn Chah would often talk of these as the the um, uh, the five teachers or the five Ajahn's. And speaking about um, about dullness the second one he's well uh, lump Luosum is talking about aversion and uh liking to sleep because of uh, being able to to not feel and so on um, just as I was reading that I was reminded of a of a particular anagarika who's not here <laughs> this is many many years ago at um <coughs> at uh, at Chidhurst back in about nineteen eighty one or eighty two and um the uh, uh, we were talking about how uh, the the routine there was was very densely packed so we'd have uh, either people would go out on the, the arms round in the morning or they'd be working around the monastery in the morning they'd be working have a monastery work period in the afternoon as well it's had this uh the main shithurst house was filled with dry rot and was in a very kind of tumble down state and the, the nun's cottage was also needed a, a lot of fixing up so there was a, a great deal of physical work that we were all involved in and and lumpur Sumato would often give uh, teachings every every morning and every afternoon at tea time and then in the evening give a dhamma talk as well so usually you know two or three talks a day and and so we we're sitting in the in, in this um uh in the reception room, there having this conversation about how there really isn't that much space in the day at at Chithurst. and you know you really. Someone said, "Well, how much sleep do you get?" And he said, "Well, there isn't really much time to sleep at all." And this particular Anagarika uh, said, um, <coughs> "And I've been speaking about that." So he said, "You know, you said that there isn't that much time to sleep during the day." He said, "If you really work at it, if you really, if you really keep, if you really." Um, Put your mind to it. You can, you can sleep for 14 hours a day here. I said, really? He said, oh, yeah, you have to be focused. <laughs> but he was a very aversive type. He was a very kind of self, um, self-aversive type. And so he really liked to switch off. And I said, sick, 14 hours? He said, yep, you can do it. You know, if you're committed. <laughs> so I don't know how many of you managed to get to... That kind of, uh, those kind of hours in here in Amravati, things are a bit more spacious here. Now, but um, if the mind is inclined towards that's not being, then we can always find ways to, to switch off and to, to go numb. But that in itself is not going to be um, the ending of suffering. It's a sort of numbing of, of suffering, but it's not a, a cessation of it. The third hindrance is sleepiness. Lethargy, sloth, drowsiness, torpor. We tend to react to this with aversion, but this also can be understood. Dullness can be known. The heaviness of body and mind, slow, dull movement. Witness the aversion to it, the wanting to get rid of it. You observe the feeling of dullness in the body and mind. Even the knowledge of dullness is changing, and satisfactory, not self it's also with respect to to dullness and sleepiness particularly in meditation um as i said about that particular anagarika um yeah you know, he had a lot of self hatred self-aversion so his favored mode was just to switch off and not feel and so if you um as uh, often the case when people have a lot of difficulty uh, staying awake in the meditation the mind goes towards sleepiness and sort of going going into dull states the issue is not energy the issue is not uh, alertness, often the issue is more self-hatred but, um, as uh, experience has shown that it's more if you have a, like a very negative opi- uh, opinion of yourself and you're very self-critical, then if you're sitting and you're awake, what you're awake to is a stream of negative comments about yourself <laughs> coming from your own mind. So the alternative is to switch off and not feel that. So it's it's not uncommon that the, um, the, the cause of dullness in meditation isn't uh, not making effort, or is not the, the the posture or anything? It can be that uh, there's a a lot of self criticism and self hatred is the is the driving force. So strangely enough, um, the the way to counteract or you know, to work with with dullness is often uh, loving kindness. To have a quality of. Forgiveness and acceptance for, for your own body, your own mind, your own personality. And that even though it might seem that, that metta doesn't have a lot to do with energy or alertness, that it, it can be that where, if there's a much more um, well grounded quality of, uh, of self acceptance, then that can, uh, say, remove the causes for the mind wanting to switch off all the time. Does that make sense? So, restlessness is the opposite of dullness. This is the fourth hindrance. You're not dull at all. You're not sleepy, but restless, nervous, anxious, tense. Again, it may have no specific object. Unlike the feeling of wanting to sleep, restlessness is a more obsessive state. You want to do something. Run here, do this, do that, talk, go round, run around. If you have to sit still for a little while and you're feeling restless, you feel penned in, caged. All you can think of is jumping, running about, doing something. So You can witness that also, especially when you're cons- you're contained within a form where you can't just follow restlessness. The robes that bhikkhus wear are not conducive to jumping up into trees and swinging from the branches. G1 will fall off, especially designed to be uh, inconvenient, <laughs> to fall off easily. We can't act out this leaping tendency in the mind, so we have to watch it. Doubt is the fifth hindrance. Sometimes our doubts may seem very important, and we like to give them a lot of attention. We're very deluded by them, because they appear to be so substantial. Some doubts are trivial, yes, but this is an important, capital I, doubt, capital D. I've got to know the answer. I've got to be sure. I've got to know definitely. Should I do this or should I do that? Am I doing this right? Should I go there, or should I stay here a bit longer? Am I wasting my time? Have I been wasting my life? Is Buddhism the right way, or isn't it? Maybe it's not the right religion. This is doubt. You can spend the rest of your life worrying about whether you should do this or that. But one thing that you can know is that doubt is a condition of the mind. Sometimes that tends to be very subtle and deluding. In our position as, quote, the one who knows, unquote, we know doubt is doubt. Whether it's an important or a trivial one, it's just doubt. That's all. Should I stay here or should I go somewhere else? It's doubt. Should I wash my clothes today or tomorrow? That's doubt. Not very important, but then there are the important ones. Have I attained stream entry yet? What is a stream entry anyway? Is Ajahn Sumedho an Arahant? Are there any Arahants at the present time? Then people from other religions come and say, yours is wrong, ours is right. Then you think, maybe they're right. (laughs) Maybe ours is wrong. What we can know is that there is doubt. This is being the knowing, knowing what we can know, knowing that we don't know. Even when you're ignorant of something, If you're aware of the fact that you don't know, then that awareness is knowledge. You follow that? Even when you're ignorant of something, if you're aware of the fact that you don't know, then that awareness is knowledge. So like it's dark outside. So you can't see, uh, it's dark, but you know that you can't see. So there's an awareness at this moment I can't see because it's dark. So that you know that you don't know so the when when we do the 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 chanting the funeral chanting and we uh, that that very very long word in the um vipassana bumi samitindriya that means the faculty of knowing the unknown it means knowing that you don't know for those who are interested in long pali words <laughs> so uh, uh, again this is a uh, um, uh, Get it as I was talking the other day um, about about doubt and the way that the mind buys into it, and, they, and both Lumpur Someto and Lumpur Chao were, were Olympic class doubters. So that's why it comes up a lot in their Dhamma teachings, and and so that this um, say that the tendency of the mind to be drawn into the content, important doubt, capital I, capital D, and that the, the sometimes you can uh, it can be like so, uh, incredible effort. its a sort of uh, enormous effort—to sort of draw the attention out of that and say, "Well, yes, that's—it is a really important doubt. Very large I, very large D. But at this moment, it is just a doubt. Now you can't—it's not just a doubt. This is really important. You know, what if Buddhism is totally wrong? And so uh, <clears throat> there was a, a, again an, an exchange between. Uh, Actually, on that same trip in 1981, when, when uh, uh, Lumpur Sumedha went back to visit Thailand, uh, he took, uh, one, he took a, a group of people from, from Chithurst and, and uh, from the Buddhist groups in, in, here in England with him and uh, Aj, uh, took uh, Ajahn Chandasiri, she was an Anagari um, took her along at that time as well as part of the group. And he'd been telling her about how um, there was this very inspiring American nun, uh, Mechi Khampha, at the uh, Wapapong. Uh, and had been there for you know, four or five years, and she was a very good practitioner and was a really good example as a, as a committed uh, member of the monastic community and a, a good uh, experienced nun for, for Sister Chandasiri to, to meet and to, to look up to. And then when he got there, he found out that Mechi kumfar and her, her, uh, her ex-husband, who was a monk, <laughs> so Titapo and Kumfa were married before they were they, be, they became a nun and a monk. And so... Uh, they were in robes for about five years and sort of lived separately. But um, Anyway, she got uh, converted to Christianity by an American missionary from Ubon. And uh, so when uh, Ajahn Sumedho, having extolled the virtues of Mechi Kanfa and how wise and, and inspiring she was, she he got there to Wapapong and found out she was a born-again Christian. So that led to a very interesting discussion with her and with uh, Titapo. And uh, I think they were still in robes at that point. They were about to, they were about to—they to, asked permission to disrobe and go off and live as uh, Christians elsewhere. And um, so uh, Ajahn Sumedha had gone and uh, spent about two or three hours chatting with the two of them, with, with Titapo and Kampfar, and uh, got, ab- quote unquote, got absolutely nowhere <laughs> in trying to persuade them of their, their wrong views and their kind of deluded attitudes. So then uh, he went back to go and pay respects to Cha and, and again Lumpur asked him, "So, Sameda, how did that how did that conversation go?" <laughs> they're so stupid! I can't believe they're such idiots! And, you know, don't they know better than that? And and um, <clears throat> and again, getting a bit lost in his own uh, his own rightness. And then after he'd sort of finished describing how foolish and deluded and and filled with wrong view, Kampa and, and Titapo were, Lumpur Chow said, maybe they're right. <laughs> and then he said, there's this moment, it's like, is he testing me? <laughs> he's joking. He's not joking. He's not, he's not joking. He's, jo- he's joking. He's got to be joking. He's not joking. And Lumpo was an amazing, Lumpo was an amazing actor. He, you know, he could, he, he never knew exactly what he was thinking. And so that, he uh, sort of, kind of, tease quite, uh, quite easily. and So, that uh, just seeing if there's any doubt there in, in uh, Ajahn Sumedho's mind. Maybe they're right. So this is being the knowing. Knowing what we can know. The five hindrances are your teachers. Because they're not the inspiring radiant gurus from the picture books, they can be pretty trivial, petty, foolish, annoying and obsessive. They keep pushing, jabbing, knocking us down all the time until we give them proper attention and understanding, until they are no longer problems. That's why one has to be very patient. We have uh, we have to have all the patience in the world and the humility to learn from these five teachers. And what do we learn? That these are just conditions in the mind. They arise and pass away. They're unsatisfactory, not self. Sometimes one has very important messages in our lives. We tend to believe those messages, but what we can know is that those are changing conditions. And if we patiently endure through that, then things change automatically on their own. And We have the openness and clarity of mind to act spontaneously rather than react to conditions. With bare attention, with mindfulness, things go away on their own. You don't have to get rid of them because everything that begins, ends. There's nothing to get rid of, you just have to be patient with them and allow things to take their natural course into cessation. When you're patient, allowing things to cease, then you begin to know cessation, silence, emptiness, clarity. The mind clears, and there is stillness. The mind is still vibrant. It's not oblivious, repressed, or asleep, and you can hear the silence of the mind. To allow cessation means that we have to be very kind, very gentle and patient, humble, not taking sides with anything, the good, the bad, the pleasure or the pain. Gentle recognition allows things to change according to their nature, without interfering. So then we learn to turn away from seeking absorption into the objects of the senses. We find our peace in the emptiness of the mind, in its clarity, in its silence. Any questions, reflections, thoughts, Mm. hindrances, is there a lot there? Yes, sister.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm. But it's <laughs> not quite the same quality as <laughs> fear like, you know, full on paralyzing fear that's on the extreme but even just in moderate fear. Um on you know, everyday level but also on uh meditation level and uh and uh obstacle to samadhi is I think I don't know how
0: Well, the uh, fear is uh, it sort of fits in a number of different categories. So it's it's called one of the agati or the biases. So greed, hatred, and delusion, dosa loba moha, uh, and then also uh, fear. Uh, uh, called the the four agati or the four biases. So they are, it's definitely there in the list of obstructive uh, qualities of mind. Um, the, uh, as, uh, as you find with many of these lists, they're not completely exhaustive. They're just sort of a particular way of looking at certain areas of the mind or certain aspects of experience. So, um, so in that, that list of the biases, you've got greed, hatred, delusion, and fear as the... As the those a bias means the way of distorting or making the mind sort of steer in a particular direction, so it's definitely in that list of, of obstructive qualities. There, uh, I think, within the uh, the just as you said, that the restlessness and worry, kukucha, that the that sense of anxiety and fear is in there, also vichikicha doubt, worry is part of the, the doubting, um, uh, the that sort of. Process of doubting is um, should I do this? Should I do that? You know, what, what should I do? <laughs> and so that that emotional quality is there. So doubt isn't just a conceptual thing; it's also got the the emotional side of it. You can you can say is more worry or anxiety. Um, but it's true. I mean, my uh, I've often talked about how I, I had incredibly strong feelings of anxiety, and such to such an extent that I didn't even know it was there for many, many years, that it was just so constant and so such an automatic uh, relationship of the mind to the world that I, I, you know, I, I would liken it to the force of gravity. It's like you don't think, oh, you know, I feel gravity, because everybody does. It's just no, it's not news. It's the same thing everyone's experiencing all the time. So I was so anxious and so, uh, so filled with, with worry about everything it just seemed completely normal. I didn't see there was any alternative. I just assumed that human life is like like this. This is how everybody experiences the world. And it wasn't until I was here in the the, uh, late 80s, sort of about 88, 89, 90, so I'd already been a monk for uh, about seven or eight years, that I began to realize, oh, I'm worried all the time. And then, also during that, that era, uh, Lumpur Samedha was talking a lot about mindfulness of emotion and deliberately bringing up emotions and, and, and observing the emotional patterns in, in the mind. And then it really dawned on me my goodness, I'm worried all the time, and, and it doesn't have to be this way. And uh, it was just uh, um, an extremely challenging uh, sort of habit of, of mind. And, uh, <clears throat> so uh, uh, my experience of it it uh, was to do with uh, i think i would in, within the hindrances i would put it in that um uh, that sort of uh the which the udacha kukucha restlessness of worry and it's more like a physical tension um and then with with in terms of doubt i didn't find myself so much caught up in in doubt as a conceptual thing like should i do this or should i should i do that i i didn't have any issues with that side of it but just the worrying about the outcome what's going to happen or how's this going to be or what do they think or does this person approve or do they not <laughs> and so that was extremely strong um so that uh you know, but with all of these these patterns of, of the teachings it's you know the the way to work with them is to 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 listen to what uh to how they, they describe things and then map that onto your own experience, because everyone 's going to be a bit different, so for some people that, the, um, that their their mind focuses on sense desire and they 're completely focused on, on on the habits of, of sense pleasure, and they don 't have any kind of of a sort of philosophical concerns at all for someone else the the, um, the the main thing in their life is well, but what is the Dhamma? Really, it's supposed to be the most important thing, but what is it? I can't, you know, they, they can't, they can't do anything, they're kind of, uh, they're obsessed with the idea of trying to figure out what the Dhamma is, or does God really exist or not? Or if, you know, what, what's a, what does Buddhism have to say about, about the nature of God, or no God, or, or what is the ultimate reality? And they don't even notice the food, or, the <laughs> or, or comfort. It's like their, their attention is in a completely different zone. So each one of us has got different sort of concerns and conditioning. And it's, say, so listening to these, these particular teachings, and then you, you, map, you map them onto your own field of experience. And uh, so um, it was, took me years and years to notice. Cause I, I, don't, I don't feel jealous. I don't have a lot of jealousy or anger. And uh, I, I, it was I was listening to Lumpur Sema give Dhamma teachings for years before I realized he talks about jealousy all the time. It's, it's a really common theme, and then he would say, you know, he felt a lot of jealousy and had a lot of jealousy, and I thought, oh, I'd never even noticed that because it doesn't really surface in my. I had a lot of other things going on, <laughs> worry and lust and so on, but. Uh, but I, and my mind wouldn't go towards anger or, or jealousy, and, and he would talk about them all the time. My, my mind, so my perception was sort of editing them out. Well, that doesn't really matter. Well, that's not really significant. I wasn't really hearing it, but for him, that was something he had to work on a huge amount. So it appears over and over and over again in his uh, in his teaching. When I'm mentioning jealousy, I'm mentioning it mostly because I've listened to La- Lufosomato's teachings, <laughs> rather than I felt very much of it. So sort of, I include it in. Oh, let's not forget that because there is that as well more as an idea rather than a a, a kind of uh, uh, an emotional habit. So I think that making the teachings alive for your own uh, experience and to get to know your own conditioning is an important thing. And so that (coughs) uh, we all have um, a different background or a sense of, maybe you have a sense of, of always being a stranger or being a foreigner or being not really belonging and so then the mind has to look at that sense of being always being excluded or being left out or not really being a part of things or maybe the other end of the spectrum you feel totally entitled and privileged and well, of course I'm the most important person here you know <laughs> well it's obvious isn't it you know that and so the you get to know those feelings of 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 you know, assumption of value, or that you're you're um, you're entitled to certain privileges, or certain, being seen in a certain way. You know, oh, look at that! My mind was really dependent on that sense of approval or uh, uh, acceptance in that way. And somebody at the other end of the spectrum is they don't they that as a completely unknown concept to them. They'd never felt that way. They but then the perception has been one of being left out, or being a foreigner, or being. Yeah, insignificant or not belonging, and that uh, <coughs> so that then that becomes the area that you you need to look at, and so then exploring how the the, the teachings relate to those particular patterns, and you know there's a whole uh, big spectrum of uh, different things. Yeah, the thoughts, questions, reflections on this. Yes.
1: Very <laughs> um, really often I, uh, I have a lot of fear um, because uh, I have fear about uh, death. Because uh, um, earlier I uh, trained uh, my mind to uh, Madame, Nas- Madame Sati, uh, mindfulness of death, and um, I was uh, thinking a lot about death, oh, I will die uh, I will die soon. I have to practice a lot uh, um, to be in the Dhamma, to be a stream uh, soon. Because uh, if uh, if I uh, I die, uh, I die. For example, tomorrow I can fall in hell. I can fall in a ghost realm. And uh, I was thinking about that. and <coughs> I was uh, very worried, and um, <coughs> it was a bit. Dis- it's a bit disturbing because uh, people say to me, "Oh." Uh, you have chance, uh, you have a good karma because uh, you are young and uh, you can be a monk. But in my mm-hmm. mind, it's not like that. It's not, it's uh, not a, oh like no, no, like I don't have that. chance because I, I will die soon, I can die <laughs> soon. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm very worried and I, I don't see the good karma, I see only the, the bad thing. So yeah. I would like to ask you what what, uh, what do you recommend me or
0: what do you, what's your advice? Well, the uh, those uh, reflections on marananasati, the, um, uh, the the presence of death and the inescapable quality of death, is um, it's there to help encourage a quality of urgency. But uh, if it's making us anxious, uh, then and uh, and is becoming a, a, a sort of a, a cause of stress and difficulty, then uh, it's not being handled in, in a skillful way. So that all of those reflections, like the different uh, the Anusatis, then they they're not there to build up a sense of self. So that it's a uh, they're there to counteract tendencies. So if you're complacent or you're you're lazy, then it's like they'll say, oh well, you know, this could be my last breath. You know, (coughs) get get ready, (laughs) and so that that um, uh, is there to to sharpen the uh, attention so with uh, with any of that the uh, to notice the forming of i i should i must um the i making and mind making around the, those uh practices that uh, to see that that habit how it works and and to do the best <laughs> thing can be done to let go of that to not to not feed that so that then there's the the energizing or the the rousing quality of yeah there's um a uh, 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 an urgency uh, that's, that's being encouraged, but it's not um, creating more uh, more difficulties. They uh, uh, just, but also as we were talking about loving kindness the other day in the in the reading, that uh, having loving kindness for your own feelings of fear, like, oh dear, what am I going to do? I'm you know uh, I'm going to Die and fall into hell to have loving kindness for that those sort of uh self based reactive patterns to to not feel like you have to believe those thoughts that they're just thought forms just because you think it it doesn't mean it's true, and to have loving kindness for those sort of those anxious and agitated thoughts as well and say well okay that's just a a reactive pattern of the mind and it's it's taking hold of it in this way and and these anxious feelings have arisen and they're, they're part of nature. They don't have to be believed in. They don't have to be suppressed. That they have uh, arisen, you know, according to causes and conditions. And so here they are. So there's an acceptance of, of those, and so the, the way you're cultivating a, an openness of heart, a, 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 an openness of attitude, to even those sort of painful or difficult uh, states of mind. And uh, one of the things in the um, uh, in this sort of mindfulness of thinking that was was in a reading a couple of days ago is to when you when you find the mind getting caught up in those reactive patterns to 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 in a sense catch them and replay them i better practice quickly otherwise i might die tonight and i'll fall into hell that's what i'm afraid of you know just kind of catching it and replaying it and that and so then when you you you're able to know it oh that's just a thought or that's a, a, an anxious reaction, then the mind doesn't believe in it in the same way when you don't recognize it's a thought you assume it's just a an accurate representation of reality then it 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 has a power over the mind when you kind of catch it and replay it and say and then oh this is a this is a worry this is what the mind is creating then the it the trick doesn't work. It's like the the lights are too bright for the conjurer to do the trick. You know, you can see how the trick is done. <laughs> you understand what I mean? So that that um, uh, watching the, the 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 thought patterns, or you know, this is really good, is to catch that and replay it. Here is the mind saying, "This is really good." Well, that's really awful. Here is the mind saying, "That's really awful." Uh-huh. Here is the mind saying, "Oh, I'm, if I don't do something now, I'm going to really be in trouble." That to catch that. Oh, here is the mind saying, "Oh, if I don't really work hard and do something right now, I'm, I'm really going to be in, a, in trouble." That's what that. That's what the mind is thinking. It's that feeling. So that there's a deliberate stepping out of the content of those thoughts and emotional uh, reactions, and recognizing them for for what they are. And so then, in, in that process, the mind is not so. Drawn into it, it's like reading the adverts on a poster or in a, in a magazine or a, you know, on, a, on the side of a bus. It's just well, it's just an advert. It's saying, buy this and you'll be happy. So, <laughs> and so that, that's a, a very. It takes a bit of mindfulness, kind of alertness to 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 catch those thought forms because they, we believe in them so easily. But uh, if you recognize the value of that, and you, if you do that a few times and you say, oh, wow, it really makes a difference, then it, it uh, that's what I found when I started to follow that instruction from, from Lumbo Samedo back in the, in the early years, and seeing like, wow, that really makes a difference. Because you're not suppressing the thought, you're not saying, don't believe that, don't believe it, don't believe it. <laughs> you know, it's like, you're not afraid of it or trying to wipe it out, but you're just literally, well, that's a thought. That's the mind making a judgment. Of, this is really great. If I could just have that, everything will be fine. If I could just have that, everything will be fine. Like you don't have to convince yourself it's foolish. You know from your own intuition that it, it's foolish. So it it, fo- it loses its power on its own. So like, well It's just an advert. It's just somebody on the radio to mouth off about something. So what? And another a, a account, a, a sort of a a uh, parallel practice to that, that Lumpur Cha would encourage, which is very, very simple, is to just, and it's a way of developing the, uh, the perception of anicca, uh, is whenever the mind makes a judgement, oh, this is really great, to ask the question, is that so? Or this is really, that's really awful, how can I think that way? Yeah, that's really stupid. Is that so? Well, I don't agree with that. Is that so? Yeah, that's right. Is that so? And again, you have to be quick on your feet to to, to watch those those judgments being made. Praising this, criticising that, approving this or disapproving of that. <clears throat> being attracted by something or, or afraid of something or put off by something. But it, just that catching it and say, is that so? Is that a sure thing? And then again, you don't have to convince yourself that it's not a sure thing. It's like you're in that that process of... of um, replaying the judgment and then the mind is aware, oh well that can only be part of the story. It can't be the, the whole thing. And an even simpler practice is just to say, so well, this is exactly what I wanted. So this is exactly what I didn't want. So and that that person's really inspiring. So that person's really irritating. So And uh, it is extremely simple, but if if that's applied, it has an extraordinary way of of balancing the the mind and helping to develop really skillful attitudes. So the next chapter is called Emptiness and Form." So this speaks a little bit about uh, the inner listening. Chapter 10, Emptiness and Fall. When your mind is quiet, listen. And you can hear that vibrational sound in the mind, the sound of silence. What is it? Is it an ear sound or is it an outward sound? Is it the sound of the mind or the sound of the nervous system? Or what? Whatever it is, it's always there and it can be used in meditation as something to turn towards. Recognizing that all that arises passes away, we begin to look at that which doesn't arise or pass, and is always there. If you start trying to think about that sound, have a name for it, or claim any kind of attainments from it, then of course you're using it in the wrong way. It's merely a standard to refer to when you've reached the limit of the mind and the end of the mind as far as we can observe it. So, from that position, you can begin to watch. You can think and still hear that sound, if you're thinking deliberately, that is. But once you're lost in thought, then you forget it, and you don't hear it anymore. So, if you get lost in thought, then once you're aware that you're thinking again, turn to that sound and listen to it for a long time. So what he means is, and also in this, this, um, this practice, Lungphu would often encourage to, uh, a particular way of learning how to listen to thought, or to be mindful of thought, is to take a, a very benign, uh, an emotionally uncharged thought, like today is Friday. In the monastery, Friday is not a particularly exciting day. <laughs> Most people. But today is Friday or this is 2019 so just take a a simple thought like that notice the silence before it today is friday and then the silence afterwards so <clears throat> it's not personal it's not a uh, it's not praising it it's not pos- there's no possessiveness around it there's no emotional loading to it it's just today is friday <clears throat> so then you can Uh, So listen to the inner sound, the nāda sound. And even as that thought is forming, today is Friday. And you can hear the sound all the way through the forming of that thought, those those words in the mind. So if you take a really simple, brief statement like that, uh, or or just a single word like brick, (laughs) or tree, Something very very you know simple, and uh, develop that ability to listen to the sound before and during and after. Then uh, you are uh, developing the skill of being able to be mindful of thought. Then when it becomes more emotionally loaded, and oh, what I, what have got to do tomorrow, and what does that person think of me, and well that stupid thing that I said last week, and I wish I hadn't said that. You know. Then <clears throat> the uh, more personal and emotionally charged thoughts and then you also develop the skill of being able to know those also as thoughts. They're more charged in one respect, but they're essentially no different from thinking brick or rock or tree or Tuesday or Friday. Where before you'd get carried away by emotions or obsessions or the hindrances that arise, now you can practice by gently, very patiently, Reflecting on the particular condition of the mind as anicca, dukkha, anatta, and then letting go of it. It's a gentle, subtle letting go, not a slam-bang rejection of any condition. So the attitude, the right understanding, is more important than anything else. Don't make anything out of that sound of silence. People get excited thinking they've attained something or discovered something. But that in itself is another condition that you create around the silence. This is a very cool practice, not an exciting one. Use it skillfully and gently for letting go, rather than for holding on to a view that you've attained something. If there's anything that blocks someone in their meditation, it's the view that they've attained something from it. That's a very good point. <laughs> now, You can reflect on the conditions of the body and mind, and concentrate on them. You can sweep through the body and recognize sensations, such as the vibrations in the hands or the feet. Or you can concentrate on any point in your body. Feel the sensation of the tongue in the mouth, touching the palate. Or the upper lip on top of the lower one. Or just bring into consciousness the sensation of the wetness of the mouth, or the pressure of the clothes on your body just those subtle sensations that we don't bother to notice <laughs> reflecting on these subtle sen- physical sensations concentrate on them and your body will relax the human body likes to be noticed it appreciates being concentrated on in a gentle and peaceful <laughs> way but if you're inconsiderate and hate the body it really starts becoming quite unbearable remember we have to live within the structure for the re- this structure the rest of our lives. So you better learn how to live with it in a good attitude. You say, oh, the body doesn't matter. It's just a disgusting thing, gets old, gets sick and dies. The body doesn't matter. It's the mind that counts. That attitude is quite common amongst Buddhists. But it actually takes patience to concentrate on your body, other than out of vanity. Vanity is a misuse of the human body. But this sweeping awareness is skillful. It's not to enforce a sense of ego, but simply an act of goodwill and consideration for a living body, which is not you anyway. So this is a very, um, uh, very skillful advice, and again, something that Lumpur Samadhi would would uh, emphasise quite a lot. That uh, said, like a, if you have a a, a dog or a cat, the you know, really enjoys being. Well, cats are a bit more imperious, <laughs> lofty beings, but a dog really appreciates that it's, it's human paying attention to it. The, the dog is really happy when, when the mom or dad is giving it attention. It's kind of excited and happy, and, the, and he would often say the body is just the same way, that when the body is paid attention to, you give it that kind of loving care and attention, and the body responds in a very good way. And particularly when you're injured or you have illness, um, this is, this is advice I give quite often. Um, when you have an injury or an illness, you have you know, you tweaked your knee or your back, or you've got an illness of some kind, the, the instinctive reactions are fear and aversion. Fear about what it's going to turn into, that it's never going to get better, it's just going to get worse, and aversion to the pain and the discomfort and the inconvenience. Right? I'm not reading anybody's mind, it's like, how did he know? Right, well, <laughs> that's, good. that's exactly how my mind works. but. If you relate to pain and injury and illness with fear and aversion, it's uh, it's just like getting angry with your dog, you know, that, uh, getting upset with it, and being uh, negative towards it. It uh, doesn't react in a good way. The body will tense up, and, and uh, the um, that negative attitude has its uh, various different um, destructive effects. So the um, the uh, the change of attitude to Spreading loving kindness through the body and having an attitude of caring and appreciation. Um, even if you've tweaked your knee and your knee is is problematic, you can uh, and it's, uh to be spreading loving kindness to your knee. But also, don't forget the rest of the body. That the the knee that's working well, you know, to have, don't forget that one. To the other bits that are functioning uh, in an effective way. This might seem a bit uh, flaky, but. Um, my experience is that the body really does it''s a it's, uh, it's true that the body really does benefit from having a positive attitude towards it and so that particularly when I made that, that trip to Mount Kailash a few years ago when there's with uh, walking through the, um, the Himalayas uh, in the Humla Valley in Nepal up to Mount Kailash and then walking around Mount Kailash where the physical conditions are very challenging the air is very thin and it's very high altitude and and the you get a particular injury or an ache or, a, or something will get wrenched or you go, oh what's that And the, the, maybe that feeling of fear or aversion towards the discomfort or the the difficulty of breathing and such like and that uh if i would i would see that fear and aversion taking shape in relationship to that and to say okay well wait, wait a minute does the mind doesn't have to follow that track let's just shift the attitude and then be um, spreading loving kindness to the body instead, to the, my lungs or my heart, and uh, to my legs, my my back, my joints, and so on. And uh, 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 it was uh, quite noticeable how the the body would really respond. And then some kind of uh, injury or tweak that had happened would would work itself out and would and would tend to fade away. So I don't make any promises about healing all ill il- illnesses, <laughs> but certainly that uh, uh, does my experiences that brings a great deal of benefit with it. And it's, it's uh, not just magical thinking or or wishful thinking, but there really is a a, um, positive effects that come from that, that uh, you can, you can see it and know for yourself. And that also, as he said, the, the, uh, you can say, Oh, the body doesn't matter. It's a disgusting thing. Gets old, sick and dies. It's the mind that counts, uh, that, at least in the old days, that was quite a common attitude amongst Buddhists. But generally, that uh, the body comes along and says, <coughs> <laughs> and lets you know that it won't be forgotten, it won't be ignored and dismissed. And you, you end up having to deal with some really, really awkward, difficult, painful physical conditions along the way. So, your meditation now is on the five khandhas and the emptiness of the mind. Investigate them until you fully understand that all that arises, passes away, and is not self. Then there is no grasping of anything as being oneself, and you are free from that desire to know yourself as a quality or a substance. This is liberation from birth and death. This path of wisdom is not one of developing concentration to get into a trance state, get high or get away from things. You have to be very honest about intention. Are we meditating to run away from things? Are we Are trying to get into a state where we can suppress all thoughts? This wisdom practice is a very gentle one of allowing even the most horrible thoughts to appear and let them go. You have an escape hatch. It's like a safety valve where you can let off the steam when there's too much pressure. Normally, if you dream a lot, then you can let off steam in sleep. But no wisdom comes from that, does it? That's just like being a dumb animal develop a habit of doing something and then getting exhausted and crashing out, then getting up, doing something and crashing out again. But this path is a thorough investigation of and an understanding of the limitations of the mortal condition of the body and mind. Now you're developing the ability to turn away from the conditioned, and release your identity from mortality. You're breaking through that illusion that you're a mortal thing. But I'm not telling you that you're an immortal creature either because you'll start grasping that. You might start thinking, my true nature is one with the ultimate, absolute truth. My real nature is the deathless, timeless eternity of bliss. But you notice that the Buddha refrained from using phrases that would get us attached to our ideas of an ultimate truth. We can get very starry-eyed when we start using terms and phrases such as these. It's actually more skillful to watch that tendency to want to name or conceive what is inconceivable. To be able to tell somebody else or describe it, just to feel that you've attained something. It's more important to watch that than to follow it. Not that you haven't realized anything either, but be that careful and that vigilant not to attach to that realization. Because if you do, of course, it will just take you to despair once again. If you do get carried away, as soon as you realise you got carried away, then stop. Certainly don't go around feeling guilty about it or being discouraged, but just stop that. Calm down. Let go. Let go of it. You notice that religious people have insights and they get very glassy-eyed. Born-again Christians are just aglow with this fervour. Very impressive too, I must admit. It's very impressive to see people so radiant. But, is, but in Buddhism, that state is called Vipalasa, meditation madness. When a good teacher sees you're in that state, he puts you out in a hut in the woods and tells you not to go near anyone. I remember I went like that in Nongkai that first year before I went to Ajahn Chao. I thought I was fully enlightened. Just sitting there in my hut, I knew everything in the world, understood everything. I was just so radiant. And, but I didn't have anyone to talk to. I couldn't speak Thai, so I couldn't go and hassle the Thai monks. But the British consul from Vientiane, that's the capital of Laos, happened to come over one day, and somebody brought him to my hut. And I really let him have it. (laughs) Double-barreled. He sat there in a stunned state. And being English, he was very, very polite. But every time he got up to go, I wouldn't let him. I couldn't stop. It was like Niagara Falls. This enormous power coming out, and there was no way I could stop it myself. Finally, he left, made an escape somehow. (laughs) I never saw him again. (laughs) I wonder why. So when we go through that kind of experience, it's important to recognize it. It's nothing dangerous if you know what it is. Be patient with it. Don't believe it or indulge in it. You notice Buddhist monks never go around saying much about what level of enlightenment, quote unquote, they have. It's just not to be related. When people ask us to teach, we don't teach about our enlightenment about the Four Noble Truths as the way for them to be enlightened. Nowadays there are all kinds of people claiming to be enlightened or Maitreya Buddha, avatars and all have large followings. People are willing to believe that quite easily. But this particular emphasis of the Buddha is on recognizing the way things are rather than believing what other people tell us or say. This is a path of wisdom in which we are exploring or investigating the limits of the mind. Witness and see. Sabe Sankara Anicca, all conditioned phenomena are impermanent. Sabe Dhamma Anatta, all things are not self. So I'll leave it there for today.